Well, it is uh, a privilege to be with you. When Diane said, come over and speak, she did say, there'll only be a few hundred, it'll be fine. So it's been a much bigger event than that, but it's, it's great to be with you. And I know an awful lot of people have been involved in organising today. Don't these flowers look amazing? And also the dress, have you looked at the dress on the left-hand side? Recycling some of the posters for today, I think it's wonderful. So thank you to all those who've been involved. Now, we're going to have a look at uh, Genesis chapter 1. So if you have a Bible with you, and uh, if you'd like to turn to Genesis chapter 1, I'm going to read some of the verses from uh, that creation account, and then uh, we'll pray, and then we'll get started. And uh, with our Bibles open, let's just... uh, pray, and then I'll read. Father God, we do thank you that your word is living and active, and we pray now that by your spirit you would bring this word alive to us today. Please would you break through our stubborn hearts and minds. May we hear you speaking, and may we seek to honor you by obedience to what we learn. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place. And let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water team with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. 
So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the earth and the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. It was eight o'clock on a Saturday night, and I was making my way across London on the underground. The noise in the carriage was overwhelming. There was a large group of men at one end celebrating another victory in the premiership. There was a group of young women at the other, dressed to the nines and ready for a night out on the tiles. Sitting next to me were two women talking about their earlier shopping spree in Oxford Street. And opposite me were three men who seemed to be talking about the various injuries that they had inflicted on people in the past, whether accidentally or on purpose. Listening alternately to these two conversations, I couldn't work out which was the more horrifying. Hearing about the vast amounts of money spent on shoes in Selfridges or the gory details of a street fight in Aberdeen. There's no getting away from it. Men and women are different. Different in the way they relate together, different in the way they spend their leisure time, and different in the things they talk about with each other. Every carriage of every train on the London Underground that night would have demonstrated these differences in one way or another. Men and women are different. But how are these differences to be explained? Are they just cultural, or is, it more, is there more to it than that? Of course, some would argue that these differences are the product merely of our upbringing, the values our parents held and the type of school that we went to. They maintain that if it were possible to put people in a different culture with different values and different role models, then these gender differences would disappear. But others would argue that there is more to it than merely how, when, or where we were brought up. And of course, some of the differences between men and women can be explained biologically. A man's initiative in fathering a child means that there is often a strong desire to protect to provide for and to care for his family. And a mother's bond with her child, especially in the few months of life, uh, the first few months, means that she will have a strong nurturing and protective instinct of her children. Now, traditionally, these differences mean that the father has become the main breadwinner of the family and found satisfaction in his work outside of the home whereas the mother has stayed with the children and found satisfaction in her work inside the home. There's nothing particularly odd about this division of labour, although our Western society tends to view stay-at-home mums as rather lazy and unambitious. Shame on us. But some people go further than this and argue the difference physiologically, Alan and Barbara Pease are an American couple and authors of the book Why Men Don't Listen 
and women can't read maps. <laughs> There's a clue to what the book is about in the title. And they argue that the gender differences can be explained by analysing the male and female brain. Their research into how human brains have developed over the years lead them to conclude that an understanding of the essential differences between men and women is the key to all good relationships. And it's absolutely vital in marriage. They trace the origin of our differences back to the hunter-gatherer era and show how these different roles determined the way our brains have developed. Their findings explain that there are discernibly different skills and abilities between men and women. For example, they argue that uh, men tend to have enhanced long-range vision because of the hunter in them and their hunting background, but find it hard to see things immediately in front of them, like butter in the fridge. Women, on the other hand, have enhanced peripheral vision because of the former need to protect their children from predators. And this supposedly explains why 21st century women are generally not very good at judging distances in front of them and are more likely to run into the back of a car at a junction. Whereas 21st century men are generally not very good at seeing cars coming from the left or the right and are far more likely to be hit by a car when they pull out of the junction. Now, there may be some truth in what they're saying, but in my opinion, tracing back our differences to the hunter-gatherer era doesn't go back far enough. You see, the differences between men and women are best understood theologically, because it is really God's creative design that is behind them. He is the creator and the sustainer of the universe, and we are dependent on him for everything, from the movement of every muscle when we rise in the morning to the steady rhythm of breathing while we sleep at night. We are dependent on our loving Heavenly Father who designed us according to his good purpose and will. So it is to these early chapters of Genesis that we must turn if we are going to understand God's design for us as women. Now, the two accounts of, of uh, creation in Genesis 1 and 2 give us a, a sort of broad sweep at the panoramic view of creation in chapter 1 and then a more microscopic view um, in Genesis 2 when uh, we see what happened when God made man and woman. They are complementary accounts, not contradictory ones, and both are needed if we are to understand why God created us as he has. Now, of course, people disagree about whether we should take the six days of creation literally. And it's not really my brief to explore that issue this morning. However, it does seem to me that Genesis 1 seems to be written in order to teach us about God's purpose in creation, not really the physical process of creation. And uh, some people may find it hard to understand how the six days of creation can literally be six periods of 24 hours especially when the sun isn't created until day four. But we should be careful not to relegate these accounts to mere symbolism. The Lord Jesus himself clearly believed that Adam and Eve were real people created by his heavenly father, and he quoted from these accounts when teaching his disciples about marriage and family life. So what do we learn about creation from these verses? And what foundational principles do they give us? 
uh, for our design as women? Well, firstly, they tell us that God's good creation has a definite order to it. God is the subject of nearly every sentence in this account and reveals himself to be a powerful God who delights in good order, an order that is reflected in his own nature as well as in his work. I don't know if you noticed, but uh, there's a repeated pattern of phrases throughout chapter 1. Let there be is followed by, and it was so. And then, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth day. Now, the first set of three days sees the creation of important habitats. And the second set of three days sees the creation of just the right kind of inhabitants for those habitats. Let me try and explain this in a a table for you. So let's uh, first of all consider the habitats. On day one, God creates light and separates it from darkness. On day two, he creates the sky and separates it from the waters. And on day three, he creates the land and all the different types of vegetation, trees, plants, foods, and seeds, and so on. Then God creates exactly the right kind of inhabitants for those habitats. So on day four, he creates the sun, the moon, and the stars to inhabit, if you like, the light and the darkness. On day five, he creates all kinds of birds and fish to inhabit the sky and the waters. And on day six, he creates all the different types of animals and livestock to inhabit the land and eat the vegetation. And he makes them all out of nothing. All he has to do is let there be, and it is so. God's powerful word brings into being an ordered creation. God's good creation has a definite order. But then secondly, God's good creation has a specific design. When it comes to the creation of humans, there is a deliberate change in the narrative. If you've got your Bibles open still, um, have a look with you at uh, verse 26 of uh, chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. The repeated phrase, let there be, becomes, let us make. God reveals himself to be plural. We learn later, don't we, that he is three persons in one. And mankind is created to reflect that plurality. So notice how the verse goes on to say, let them rule, which indicates that humanity is also plural. This means that individually we cannot adequately reflect God's image in the world because to be made in the image of God is to be made in relationship with other people, just as God himself is in relationship with the other members of the Trinity. But humanity is also to represent him in their rule over creation. Verse 26 continues, Let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. This means that in some sense, we stand in relation to creation as God does. But we are the only creatures appointed to rule in this way. Dolphins and chimpanzees may be highly intelligent animals, but they do not have the task of ruling over the rest of creation. Nor could they, because they are not made in the image of God. 
But we should note that this rule is a delegated and not an absolute rule, as God himself remains in charge of his creation. This is demonstrated in that his representatives are told what they are to do in verse 28. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. They may be rulers of God's world, but they are themselves subject to God's rule. So to be made in the image of God is to be made to reflect God by our ability to relate together and also to represent God by our capacity to rule. No other creature in the universe is able to do this. It is a privileged position that carries with it great responsibility. So God's creation has a definite order and his representatives have a specific design. But what does it all lead to? Well, the answer comes at the start of chapter 2, as God's good creation leads to rest. Let me read verses uh, 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now the seventh day doesn't follow the same pattern as the previous six. There is no evening at the end of the seventh day. God blesses the seventh day and he rests from his work, not because he is exhausted or needs a day off, but because his work of creation is now complete. There is nothing more for him to create But this seventh day never comes to an end. It's very striking, that. And this means that the goal of creation, the point to which all the other six days have been heading, is this last day of blessing and rest. God brings creation into being so that it can experience his presence and enjoy the privilege of his blessing and his good creation. This is what God's rest involves. God's presence in God's creation with everything working together as it should. There is a definite order, there is a specific design, and the goal is God's blessing and rest. But these accounts also tell us about God's chosen representatives. The rest of Genesis 2 focuses our attention more fully on the creation of humanity, his chosen representatives. And here too, just as we saw in the creation account of Genesis 1, there is a significant order to their creation. In fact, the New Testament tells us that the order of their creation reflects the ordering of relationships within the Godhead itself. God creates Adam first and places him in the Garden of Eden, the environment or the habitat specially created for him. But what is life in the garden going to be like? Well, first of all, we see that there is both freedom and yet responsibility. Have a look with me at uh, chapter 2 and uh, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, 
you will surely die. Adam is to exercise his rule in Eden by working the garden and taking care of it. There is both the development of the earth's resources and the right stewardship implied in these God-given instructions. This means that an important part of being made in the image of God is having the capacity to work. Work, in itself, is not a curse. It is a good thing and part of what makes us human. And if anyone here has suffered the dehumanising effect of redundancy and unemployment, then you'll know exactly what I mean. With the responsibility of working the garden comes great freedom. Adam is free to eat from any tree in the garden, and we can assume, I think, that there are lots of them. Any of them except just one. God's word establishes the parameters for their life together in the garden. If Adam chooses to eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then he will die. It couldn't be simpler. Adam, if you want to live and enjoy God's blessing and rest, then eat from any of these trees. But if you want to assert your own independence and go your own way, then eat from that one in the middle. But you will die. God's ultimate rule over creation means that freedom for his creatures is never absolute. It is always limited for our good. So fish in the sea are free to swim anywhere they like. But if they were to exert their independence and jump onto dry land, well, they would soon find out why their freedom had been curtailed. Adam, too, has a choice. He can choose to live in obedient relationship with his creator or suffer the penalty of disobedient rebellion. But that's not all. The order of events here mean that Adam is given another important responsibility, that of heading up the family. At this point, only Adam is created. He is the one who hears about the parameters God sets for life in the garden He is the one given the command about the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil. He is the one who has the responsibility of warning his wife and their children of eating of this tree. He was created first. He is God's designated leader. He must take responsibility for his family. So life in the garden brings freedom and responsibility. But it also brings union and completion. There is work to be done, and Adam is eager to get started. But there is just one last problem that needs to be addressed, and only one way that it can be solved. Let me read from verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman 
from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, after all the repeated phrases in chapter 1, verse 18 is supposed to shock us. After all the times God has surveyed his work of creation and declared it to be good, here is something that is not good. It is not good for the man to be alone. He cannot adequately reflect God's image, nor be God's representative on the earth. He needs a helper. Now, some people get very upset by this word helper, thinking that it is a derogatory or demeaning uh, to women. But we need to remember that in the Psalms, God himself is described as the helper of Israel. And David acknowledges his need of God and his utter dependence on him. So the role of helper is not an inferior role. Far from it. It is a vital and unique role, as only with the provision of this helper is creation finally completed. And nothing else God has made is able to take on this role. This is made clear as God, first of all, brings all the animals to Adam to see what he would name them. And notice that it's Adam, not God, who has the responsibility of naming the animals, highlighting again that God has delegated his rule to his chosen representative. But, of course, none of the animals can fulfill the role of helper. So God causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep and makes the woman out of one of his ribs. Now, of course, God could have taken her from the dust. He could have made her from the dust, just as he had Adam. But instead, he chooses to make her from him, to show that she too is part of man and made in the image of God. One writer observes that the woman is not made from Adam's head to rule over him, nor from his feet to be trampled by him, nor is she made from his back to walk behind him, or his knee to bow down to him. No, she is made from his side to stand by him, from under his arm to be protected by him, and from near his heart to be cherished by him. Well, that may be a little over-sentimental, but it makes the point, doesn't it, that Adam himself acknowledges in verse 23 that she is a part of him and yet also distinct from him. She is made from the same flesh as him, but she is not the same as him. She is an individual in her own right, but somehow completes him. There is both independence and interdependence here. And Adam exercises his delicated rule once again by giving her her name. She shall be called a woman because she came out of man. Verse 24 then defines uh, the relationship that they will enjoy together. 
This is how God has defined marriage for us. Notice that the verse starts with, for this reason. In other words, because woman was taken out of man, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Once again, there is a deliberate order to the events mentioned here. First of all, the man leaves his father and mother. He is then united to his wife, and then finally, they become one flesh. The two are united as one, exclusively, publicly, and only then, sexually. But of course, this union is really more of a reunion of what had been one in the first place. Eve came from Adam and was brought by God to Adam in order to become one flesh with Adam. It's a beautiful picture and perfectly illustrates that marriage is to be a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman. And that commitment will change the focus of all other family relationships. It is a commitment with a definite intention from both sides, one that is to be witnessed by the whole community. And only then is it to be finally consummated by their sexual union. How many of our society's problems and heartaches would disappear overnight if only people upheld God's parameters for marriage in this way. So don't be deceived. Whatever the coalition government may say, same-sex unions do not constitute a marriage. God defines marriage as being between a man and a woman, the reunion of what had been one in the first place. But that's not the only thing. The culture we live in is undermining our view of sex and marriage in other ways as well. So don't be deceived into thinking that masturbation is a legitimate way of satisfying your sexual longings or that watching a bit of pornography won't do you any harm. Sex is a wonderful gift from the Lord, but it involves a man and a woman giving themselves to each other and receiving from each other. You cannot enjoy sex as God intended on your own. And then don't be deceived into thinking that sex is okay and can be enjoyed without making a public, lifelong commitment first. This passage makes it quite clear that the only appropriate context for sex is heterosexual marriage. We are sexual beings, and sex is a wonderful gift from the Lord. The longing that a woman has to be united with a man and to become one flesh with him is a God-given longing. But we will not enjoy it as God intended unless we follow his parameters. He designed us. He knows what is best for us. Sex is his idea. And he knows how it is best enjoyed. So life in the garden brings freedom and yet responsibility, union and completion. God's good gift of Adam and Eve to each other means that his work of creation is now finished. The wedding is over and life in the garden can begin. And verse 25, the very last verse of chapter 2, gives us a wonderful summary 
of their marriage relationship. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. It's a picture of perfect harmony, of openness, acceptance, purity, and innocence. They are totally naked, but completely unashamed. This lack of shame is not a lack of conscience, as some people would suggest, but rather the absence of any guilt. They have nothing to be ashamed of. God's representatives are made to reflect his image in their relationship together and their rule over creation. Whether this means that if the fall hadn't happened, we would all have married in this way, well, we'll never know. What we do know is that marriage is instituted by God and is the closest of all human relationships. And when people follow the marriage pattern as God intended... It is a beautiful thing. Well, there is much for us to learn from these verses. But what do they tell us about his design, his blueprint, if you like, for human relationships? What do they tell us about our design as women? Well, I think there are three foundational principles here, the first of which is equality. God created men and women equal in status, in dignity, and in humanity. They are both made in his image, and both are needed to represent him and reflect his image in his world. Men and women are both given the task of subduing the earth and ruling over the created order. They are given to each other in marriage, where family life and the nurture of children, as God intended, are to be enjoyed. Secondly, there is diversity. God created men and women with different roles in marriage and the family. Adam was created first to lead the family and Eve was created second to be his essential helper. This helper role is no less important than the leader role but it cannot be identical to it. In order to be the leader God wants him to be, Adam needs Eve to help him. And in order to be the helper that God wants her to be, Eve needs Adam to lead her. Both are needed, but Adam is the one who is ultimately responsible for their family life together. Now, I think our natural inclination as women is to reject this, but we need to remember that the ordering of human relationships is purely functional as it is in the Godhead and does not confer either a superior status on men or an inferior status on women. The New Testament tells us uh, that God the Father is head of God the Son, and God the Son submits to God the Father, but they remain equal in deity. The way God has has fashioned the very closest human relationship means that it is possible for equality and diversity to exist at the same time. This then leads to the third foundational principle, that of complementarity. If men are equal in status, but different in function, then by definition, they are complementary entities. Now, this is not complementary with an eye in the middle, where men and women stand around giving compliments to each other. This is complementarity with an E in the middle, 
meaning that they bring completion to each other, which means that on their own, they are to some extent incomplete. Now, don't mishear me on this. I am not saying that single people are subhuman or somehow deficient. The Lord Jesus himself never married while he was here on earth, but of course he was the most satisfied and complete human being that has ever lived. But I am saying that you cannot enjoy the complementarity that a husband and a wife bring to each other if you're on your own. This means that husbands and wives have the responsibility of reflecting something of God's ordering of relationships in a way that single people can't. Adam rejoices in Eve's likeness to him, and yet he is also thrilled that she is different to him. Adam is not given a mirror image companion. He is given a woman And he delights in her correspondence to him, which resides both in her likeness to him, she is human after all, and her difference to him, she is female. They are designed for one another. So we are not to lament the differences between men and women. You may remember um, Henry Higgins in the musical My Fair Lady um, asks the question, why can't a woman be more like a man? But I have to say, that would be a disaster. We are meant to be different from one another. We are meant to complement one another. So the closest human relationship is a marriage between a man and a woman, where they are equal, but have different and complementary roles. And these roles need to be exercised if God's ordering of their relationship is to be demonstrated effectively. They are in partnership together and need to work together as a team but neither of them can function effectively unless the other plays the part given to them by God, either of leader or helper. So equality, diversity, and complementary and complementarity, three foundational principles established at creation that give us God's design, his blueprint for human relationships. But before we write these off as culturally irrelevant for us today, We need to remember how each of these principles is upheld in the New Testament. For example, the Lord Jesus affirmed the equality of men and women despite the prevailing Jewish and Roman cultures of his day. He spoke to women and expected them to speak back to him. He taught them alongside men and expected them to listen to his word and to be obedient to him. I don't think it's any accident that after the resurrection, Jesus appeared first of all to the women with the specific instruction that they should go and tell the disciples what they had seen, even though a woman's testimony at the time was considered unreliable, both in Jewish and Roman law. The Apostle Paul similarly upholds the equality of men and women and taught that they are equally redeemed equally adopted into God's family, and equally marked out by the Holy Spirit. The New Testament commends marriage as the norm for most people, and yet affirms the diversity of roles for men and women within marriage. So a husband is head of the family, 
and is to love his wife sacrificially by leading her. And a wife is to submit to her husband voluntarily, acknowledging that this is his leadership and God-ordained, and also for her good. But the created order has implications for the roles of men and women more widely as well. Consider the church family. Jesus certainly affirmed the ministry of women, but he did not call them to be part of the twelve disciples or indeed appoint them as his apostles after the resurrection. The Apostle Paul similarly saw the need to model the diversity of roles for men and women in the church and taught that only men were to be appointed as elders and overseers. That's not to say that women do not have a role to play in the life of the church. In fact, Titus chapter 2 would suggest that there is a role that only women can do. But it is a different and complementary role to that of men. But the New Testament introduces another important dimension to marriage. It may be the closest human relationship, but it is not the most important relationship that a woman can have. In fact, human marriage is to serve as a pointer towards a much more significant relationship, that of the marriage between Christ and his church. So however good a human marriage may be, it is always only ever a pale shadow of the real marriage that is to come. If you like, it's just a dress rehearsal. Earthly marriages are temporary and just for this life. So if you're married here today, you need to remember that your husband will not be your husband in the new creation. He will be your brother. Your children will not be your children in the new creation. God willing, they will be your brothers and sisters. Earthly marriages are a reminder to us that the most precious of marriages, the heavenly marriage, well, that's the only one that lasts forever. So when I see a Christian wife voluntarily submitting to her husband. It is a reminder to me as a single person that I should voluntarily submit to the Lord Jesus, who is the eternal bridegroom. And when I see a Christian husband sacrificially loving his wife, it is a reminder to me as a single person of Christ's sacrificial love for his bride. Once we understand what earthly marriage is supposed to point us to, then I think it helps us to keep it in perspective, neither expecting too much from it, nor seeing it as an end in itself. Those of you who are married, you have a responsibility in your churches, in the way that you relate to your husband, to point people to the Lord Jesus. And when you do that, It is a beautiful thing. So what are we to make of all of this? What do these foundational principles mean for us here in the 21st century? Of course, there are some people who will pay no attention to these principles at all and uh, will say that uh, the cultures were different back in biblical times and therefore we can live differently today in a more enlightened era. 
But I would argue that these principles established at creation need to be upheld in every generation. So what do they mean for us today? Well, here are a few suggestions. First of all, we should respect our equality. God treats men and women equally at every level, and we should do the same. We are made to reflect his image, and we should do this in our relationships with men. And we are to represent God by the way that we rule, and we should do this in a way that honours him in our work. How easy it is to ridicule men and to put them down because they're different to us. They can't multitask. It's actually a good thing. Somebody needs to concentrate on the one job from time to time. Our society would have us believe that women are in many ways superior to men, able to multitask, able to have children and hold down a successful career. We have a higher pain threshold. We tend to live longer. But the truth is, men are our equals, and we are no more special to God than they are. There may be some here today who need to repent of their ungodly attitudes towards men. More generally, of course, we should treat all human beings equally. How easy it is to have a favourite child or a favourite parent. And yet, of course, all our children and both our parents are made in God's image and equally precious to our Heavenly Father. How easy it is to uh, get on well with some people at work, but not so well with others, and to reflect that in the way that we treat them or talk about them when they're not around. How easy it is to dote on a newborn baby and yet ignore the pensioner. Why do people drive around with a baby on board sticker in their cars? As if having a baby on board, as opposed to any other human being, should make us more careful on the road. Actually, statistics say, don't they, that you're more likely to have an accident with that in your car because people get distracted by it. But I think maybe we should get some others made. 48-year-old single woman on board. (laughs) That, That would be a good one for me. Uh, with a telephone number underneath, maybe. (laughs) I love babies. But it is true that our culture values the young and ignores the old. Secondly, we need to embrace our diversity. God expects men and women to accept the fact that we're different that we have different roles to play in marriage and the church. And if we want our families and our church families to provide a stable environment for the nurture and growth of our children, then we must let men lead us. That is the role that God has given to them and the role that our sons need to see. That's not to say that women have no part to play but we must let the men lead us. Which means that at times we may need to actively hold back, bite our tongues, and wait for them to do something. Sometimes I think uh, men need a little bit of space and time before they take the initiative. And if we jump in too much, too quickly, then of course they'll never do it. 
I sometimes wonder if our eagerness to help and to be involved actually makes it harder for them to lead. A friend of mine uh, once said that after 18 years of marriage to the most gorgeous Christian man ever, which is, of course, her description, not mine, (laughs) he finally had the courage to say to her, you know, honey, you're the best wife I could ever have, but please slow down on the good ideas. It takes me a long time, and uh, I need a little bit more time before the next lot come. Another way of illustrating this, of course, I think, is in the area of prayer. It's my observation that women are very often eager to pray, but men are not. Maybe that's not true in uh, your church, but I've noticed uh, in the churches I've belonged to over the years that women are often the ones who will lead the intercessions in church, whereas the husbands will hold back, or perhaps in the church prayer meeting, and the men will just be silent. I think we need to hang back Now, I don't want to be misquoted on this. I'm not saying that women cannot pray. I'm not saying that they shouldn't pray out loud. But I fear that our eagerness to do so can sometimes result in the men sitting back and just letting us get on with it, which, of course, is not good for them, and it's not good for us either. But what if you're here today and you're married to a man who is not yet a believer? What if your husband doesn't see the need to lead a family and cannot be expected to uphold the biblical principles. Well, I think it must be terribly difficult for women in this situation, and we should do all that we can to support them. But of course, the biblical principles are there for all Christians, and we should do the right thing even when others around us are not. And uh, Peter addresses this very situation in one of his letters. But then, of course, some people will ask, what about the secular workplace? To what extent should we model this diversity of role outside of the family and the church? Is it permissible for women to hold leadership positions over men at work? Well, some people think that the pattern established at creation should apply to the secular workplace as well. But I have to say, I'm not convinced that it should, because I can't see that there are any covenant relationships involved in the secular workplace, unless, of course, you're working with your husband, in which case I think it probably does apply. And in Genesis 1, God said that both male and female were created to subdue the earth and rule over creation. And other passages in scripture, like Proverbs 31, would imply that there is a degree of freedom for women to work outside of the home. So I think women can be chief executives, hospital consultants, head teachers, team leaders, and so forth. But Christians in these jobs, whether they are male or female, need to be godly in the way that they exercise these roles, demonstrating patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and all the other fruit of the Spirit that should mark us out as different. My worry is that in order to be seen to be up to the job, many women adopt rather aggressive styles in which they work, which neither commends the gospel nor makes them very easy to work with. It's my observation that they often lack the contentment that the more home-focused women seem to enjoy. So we should treat each other equally and accept the diversity of roles that God has given for us in marriage and the church Which means that lastly, of course, we should delight 
in our complementarity. Men and women need each other to reflect God's image in the world, and they need to work together. We should embrace the fact that God has made us women, and that in some way, being a woman brings the created order to its completion. Men on their own cannot adequately reflect God's image in the world, nor God's ordering of creation. We need each other if we are to demonstrate our complementarity. And we will begin to fill our purpose in creation and experience his rest when we accept these roles and rejoice in them. But finally, I must address those of you who, like me, are not married. Maybe you're a single woman, never married. Maybe you're widowed or a divorcee. Maybe you're a single mum bringing up children on your own. What do these principles have to say to us? Well, of course, they teach us about the good gift of marriage and what our role would be if God were to give us that gift. They help us to understand the sanctity of marriage and to support our friends who are married. And I think they need our support and encouragement more than we realise. And of course, these principles tell us that marriage is for life and uh, warn us, in fact, they warn all of us, of the devastating consequences of being a marriage breaker. God hates adultery and extramarital affairs are off limits. So we need to be wise. It's my observation over the years that uh, single women who are financially independent and seem to have a relatively uncomplicated life can sometimes become very attracted and very attractive to married men. I've always made it a matter of principle when working with married men to ask them from time to time how their wives are, how their children are, and so forth. And where possible, to get to know their wives personally. I think it just helps to make the point that as far as I'm concerned, the two of them have become one, and nothing should threaten that relationship. But I do know that for some people who are on their own, the fact that they're not married is a cause of terrible heartache and pain. Even listening to this talk might have been agony for you. Well, I've found it hopeful over the years not to focus on the now, but to keep looking forward to heaven. You know, some people only ever live for the dot, the here and now, instead of the line that goes on into eternity. So don't focus on the here and now too much. Keep looking ahead to what is to come. This life is so transitory, and it will not last. The real life, the real deal, is yet to come. The desire to be close to a man is a God-given thing. It's not to be despised or ignored. And of course, it will one day be satisfied. Some of us here will never marry, at least not in this life. But let's not forget that we are heading towards the greatest marriage ever, one that will last for all eternity. And that will put all human marriages in the shade. So as far as God is concerned, there is no shelf. We are all betrothed to his son, and he is the most wonderful bridegroom of them all.
Let's pray, shall we?